Cinco de Mayo, Happy Children's Day, uh, all of those things. Veronica Mulherin, do you like that? Was that good? Good. All right. Uh, my name is Ron. I'm one of the elders here. John Ransom isn't here today, uh, obviously, and um, you get the sixth or seventh best thing. So here we go. Uh, I wanted to tell you something about AP government. Anybody take AP government in high school? All right, I'm gonna ask you your scores as you, since you sound so excited about that. Uh, I'm an AP government teacher in AP English uh, on the, the base on Foster, and tomorrow is kids' AP government test, the first that starts off two weeks of AP testing. So I've been thinking a lot about government stuff. My uh, reputation as a teacher is on the line tomorrow, so you know, no pressure, but uh, th- there's a political principle called balancing the ticket. Have you ever heard of this? Presidential campaigns, uh, it's called balancing the ticket. When a presidential contender enters the race, as soon as he or she gets close to being a, a real nomination for the Democratic or Republican Party or Independent Party, he or she will pick a running mate. And this running mate oftentimes is going to balance out some weakness in the main candidate. So they're going to be uh, united in political ideology and philosophy. Overall, big picture things are gonna be united. But there are gonna be some smaller areas where they, they differ. They're going to be a little bit different. And we see this with President Trump. When President Trump could decided on a, a running mate, it wasn't just that Mike Pence he thought was a great guy, is that he knew he needed another part that President Trump lacks to reach out to catch the most voters. And so President Trump has had zero government service, so he chooses somebody who has not only state service with uh, governor of Indiana, but also uh, Mike Pence was in the House of Representatives for years. So that balances him out. It balances him out because you have uh, President Trump in New York, kind of this New York billionaire versus homeland, Indiana, uh, hometown kind of Mike Pence. President Trump perhaps has some criticism about family values, I'll just leave it at that, whereas Mike Pence is the squeaky clean candidate. So it became a great balanced ticket. So if you had a little hard time voting for uh, the president, you can at least vote for Mike Pence, in a sense. And we see this, we saw with Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton chose a running mate, not who was a woman, but a man. If you had trouble voting for a woman, you had Tim Kaine and you could vote for him. He was balanced of sorts and he speaks uh, fluent Spanish. That was another part that Hillary Clinton couldn't reach minority votes, so she chose somebody who could widen the net. Obama with, a, with Biden, African-American, white guy, new to politics, a seasoned veteran in Joe Biden, all of this. We can go down the list to see how balancing the ticket is a principle in politics, but it's also a principle what we're going to see in our continuing study of Philippians today. So we're gonna be in Philippians 2 as we continue to look at Paul's letter to, as he balances the ticket and giving us a picture of two people to emulate for our Christian lives. If you remember, Paul picks up chapter two. He's in jail writing, he's in jail in Rome writing to church in Philippi, the church he planted. With, throughout this letter, it's a very encouraging, building up letter that he's trying to uh, build up the Christians who live in Philippi. He has this pastoral concern in chapter two, and we've covered this in weeks past, but he talks about being encouraged in Christ, having affection in Christ, having sympathy. He tells us to do nothing out of selfish ambition. 
to count others as more significant than yourselves. And as we learned last week, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling and do nothing without grumbling. Did you do, you, you nailed that last week? Nothing without no grumbling? We were perfect in our house. Uh, so he gives us all these commands, right? And then he closes chapter two, our section today. He's going to close chapter two with a short biography of two different men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. These were two men who the Philippian church knew very well. They were well aware of these people. And Paul uses them to encourage the believers there, to imitate and emulate them. So if you want to, Paul says, uh, if there's any encouragement in Christ and you want to do nothing out of selfish ambition, if you want to count others more significant than yourself, if you want to work out your salvation with fear and trembling and not grumble, here is a picture, a balanced ticket picture of two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Look at them and they will help us to do what it is I'm commanding you to do by imitating them. Now, some of you perhaps have seen some romantic movies. I I haven't, I've never seen one. Uh, I was in the military, I don't watch those. Uh, But there's a scene in everything where the guy will say to the woman, usually at the end of the story, he'll look at her and say, you make me wanna be a better man. Maybe that was your vow on your wedding day. Uh, But that would be, it's a very cheesy line, right? Where he looks at her and says, you want to make me, I want to be a better man because of you. Now, it works really well in a Mother's Day card next week. You can do that, so you're welcome for that. And you're also welcome for reminding you that next week is Mother's Day, so it's double. But here, outside of the cheesy way, in the real life way, this is what Paul is doing. He's putting up these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, And he is saying, look at these men, emulate these men, so that when we look at them, we say, those guys make us want to be a better Christian. They want to make us be better than we are now. The thesis that I have for us today, kind of the overarching driving force, is this. Through our active involvement in the church, God gives us opportunities to grow in Christ-likeness by imitating godly examples and encouraging others in their faith. So our involvement in church, God is going to give us these opportunities to imitate good Christian character and to encourage those who do. So let's pray to this end. Father God, we thank you for the time in front of us. We ask that you would be with us today, Lord. Open up our minds and our hearts, Lord. Help us to see the power of encouragement. Help us to see the power of godly examples. May Timothy and Epaphroditus give us something so that we can be more like your son, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's begin with our first model. And our first model that we will look at is Timothy. So we'll be in Philippians 2, verses 19 through 24. Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who is genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that, I shortly, I, that shortly I myself will come also. So Paul is writing to the Philippian church, praising Timothy, saying that soon, as soon as we figure out what's going on here, in other words, his trial, or how is he, is he going to get out of jail or not? As soon as he figures that out, I'm going to come see you. 
and Timothy will come see you as well. And he lifts up Timothy as the helper he is. For all of Paul's ministry, Timothy has been there. Timothy has been giving Paul the help that he needs in all of the church building in Europe and Asia. He says that they have a father and son relationship. He says that Timothy, there's no one like him, genuinely concerned about others' welfare. Timothy has proven worth and Timothy has served with me in the gospel. This is powerhouse Paul, the apostle Paul, publicly praising Timothy, not to Timothy, but to a church, talking behind Timothy's back in a sense, about that there is nobody like him. When we hear what Paul says about Timothy, we would love to have that being said about us, especially someone as powerful as Paul is to say that about us. And so we have all of these praises for Timothy, And let's take a look at three quick questions here about his praise. First is, about whom in the faith could you say this? Think about in your life who has walked with you, who led you to Christ, perhaps somebody who has shepherded you in some way, that you can say, this person cares genuinely for my needs. This person has labored with me in the gospel. Who is that? Somewhere, someone is that person for you. And we love these people. These, mark, these people mark our lives for all of our lives. We, there's something special about this guy or this woman that has poured into us, and we can always say that this is Timothy, Paul-like, Timothy-like, that we can say this to. My guy is a, a guy named Dave Steele. Dave Steele and I met in 1991, way back before... John Matthews was born. That was the same joke I used first one here. So, uh, but still, you're still a young guy. Back in 1991, I met Dave Steele in a Christian used bookstore that I used to work in. We stuck up a, struck up a friendship then and continued all the way till today that every summer visiting Dave Steele for lunch in Washington State is top of my priorities because I know that my time with Dave Steele, usually that three hours that we spend together, is so encouraging and so uplifting. He's not much older than I am, but he has this father likeness to him that I can't help but leave feeling refreshed and encouraged and that he has labored with me, hearing my burdens and giving me encouragement as he does all year via text. So my guy is Dave Steele. And Dave, if you're listening to this, thanks. Uh, The other one question that I have for you is a harder one, is who would say this about you? When we look at what Paul says about Timothy, Think about this tougher question. Who would say that you are the one that there is nobody like? Would anybody say that about you? To say, there is nobody like you in my life. Now, this one kind of maybe scares us a little bit because those names in the first question, we may have four or five. In the second question, maybe a, a little fewer when we're talking about in the faith, not at work or maybe not your family, although that could be in the faith as well. But just in faith, we don't have many of those. There's no one like this person. Others seek their own interest, but he doesn't. He seeks others. And maybe we should look then at the third question. If we don't have a lot of names that come to mind about who can say that about us, then maybe we have to ask, how did Timothy get that way? He's being publicly praised by the Apostle Paul. What choices did Timothy have to make in life in order to get him there? As a young man, Timothy must have made some choices in his Christian faith, both privately in prayer and scripture reading, publicly in the church, for people to not only recognize that, but for him to have this opportunity to grow. The important lesson here is that a deepened 
knowledge of the Bible and scriptures and a deep Christian character doesn't come out of a vacuum, right? We have to do something today in order to become spiritually mature. We have to do something today to change that Christian life four years from now, whoever I'm going to be four years from now. And so we look at this, and and last week when John talked about work out your salvation with fear and trembling, this is what we're talking about. We're not working out our salvation to be saved. We're working because we're saved. Because we are saved, we should be working to grow and to love and to serve and to encourage more than we ever have before. Timothy did this, and Paul can recognize this as all of Philippi recognizes this as us 2,000 years later can recognize Timothy's uh, virtue. How are we doing in that area? He did not have, Timothy doesn't have this proven worth, as Paul says, by just sitting and playing video games all day or binge-watching a Netflix show. He doesn't do that. But rather, there's something here. He's involved in a Christian community in order to grow and strengthen, strengthening others and allowing others to strengthen him. Timothy is a model for us indeed. He's not the only one, though. Paul finishes the chapter with the second and almost the balancing of the ticket with this other character, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus we know much less about than Timothy. So let's read what Paul says about Epaphroditus. A lot's going to be similar, but there's going to be some aspect of Epaphroditus that's different. So Philippians 2, 25 to 30. Paul writes, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am, more, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died in the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. To balance the ticket out with examples, Paul gives us another model in Epaphroditus. We're not as familiar with him. Epaphroditus is only mentioned here in Philippians, right in this passage, and then he has one verse in the end of chapter four, at the end of the letter. But we know three things about Epaphroditus that's important for us today. One, Paul thinks highly of him. Two, he got sick. And three, Paul sent him home. Those three things that we know for sure. But first, let's look at his qualities. Like he did with Timothy, Paul raves about this man's qualities. He has great admiration for him. Even more so, the words he uses for Epaphroditus are even a little stronger than they were for Timothy. Look at these complimentary terms. My brother fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger and minister, it would be such an honor to have this mentioned to you from anybody, let alone someone of Paul's stature. But then Paul goes on, outside of the qualities, tells us something a little different about Epaphroditus' situation that Timothy did not have. Something about this illness. We learn that the church of Philippi sent Epaphroditus to be a servant to Paul, to serve alongside Paul with the gospel for however long that would be, to the end of his life, perhaps. However, he got sick. We don't know how, possibly on the journey. He he caught something on this journey. Maybe after he was already starting to serve, he got sick, but he was almost dead. But God 
Paul tells us, has mercy on both Epaphroditus to not let him die, but also on Paul because Paul thinks so highly of him. Paul rejoices at the news. But for some reason, Paul doesn't continue on. Oh, he's okay now, so just giving you the missionary update. He's fine. Let's move on. For some reason, Paul has to send Epaphroditus back. We don't know why, but it probably has something to do with this illness. He can't do the service anymore because of whatever this illness is. Now, if you think of it in modern terms, if if Philippi is kind of like our American churches when a missionary goes out, we have this big party, don't we? We have like a service for that person, lay hands on them, do some kind of fundraising for them, and then almost have a celebratory sending of that missionary, whether that's missionary is to serve with Paul in Rome or come to Okinawa or go to Brazil or go to Uganda, wherever is that we're going to be part of this as a church sending, rejoicing. We get to be part of what God is doing in these places. But then something seems to have, have gone wrong here. So imagine after the celebration is done, after the fundraising, after the prayer letters, we end up having somebody come back. And so we're in service one day and there's Epaphroditus walking in. What are you doing here? Didn't we send you out? You were supposed to be with Paul doing great things. Paul is supposed to write about us being the sending church. And we can't imagine that this has some sense of failing to it. Because Epaphroditus has failed in one sense of the word. His mission was to go with Paul, to serve with Paul forever, however long, but Paul somehow can't have him serving anymore for whatever reason. Doesn't seem like moral failure. There's something, probably health issues. So he has to send him home. And Paul is almost anticipating those awkward questions that Epaphroditus is going to face coming back to church, as he should. I mean, as he should in the sense that he feels like a failure himself. Think of all the church plants that America, we'll just talk about our country, America uh, sends out, plants churches in America and outside America, all those church plants, all those missionaries, I have no idea of the numbers, I try to find them and it's just too, too big a, of a spread. But out of all of those, many of them have to fail for all kinds of reasons, for health reasons, for perhaps personality reasons, maybe team dynamic reasons, maybe it's the wrong place, it's the wrong building, maybe something political uprising happened, maybe it is moral failings, maybe not enough money. But in this context, we don't know what it is in Epaphroditus' case, but in a sense, he failed this mission. This mission didn't get completed. And we can imagine, as Paul does, when he goes back, the Philippians are, are like, what are you doing here? What did you do wrong? How come you, what did you, did you screw this up? I mean, we had a sweet gig with the apostle Paul. We were gonna be connected with him. Why are you back here? I raised money at a car wash in my youth group to send you. And here you are, come walking through the door again. Come on. It's clear that Paul seems now to be exerting his his apostleship to the Philippi church because he tells them a strange command. If they were excited to have him back, he wouldn't have to give this command. But it seems like their excitement is not gonna be excitement, it's gonna be disappointment that he's coming back. And Paul says this, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. He commands them to receive him with joy and honor them. They've been honoring and receiving him with joy, but they sent him. They sent him with joy. And Paul seems to be commanding them because he knows that Epaphroditus may, lead, may have some uh, looks at him 
because of this. And this is a powerful model for us to imitate. While Epaphroditus has failed in this one area, he has remained ever so faithful to the point where Paul gives this uh, waterfall of praise to him, even in his failings. He failed, but even in that, he accomplished a mission, and that is to honor Christ. Now, if we take this out of, our, out of the professional ministry, because very few of us, nobody here, I think, nobody gets paid to be a, a, profession, a minister at all. None of us, we're all laymen, but we all have some kind of life where we could say and look at this, where is my failure in life? What has failed in my life? Moral failings, perhaps, but let's put that one to a side. Let's look at some failings that maybe are beyond our control, our situation, our marriages, something's not right, our parenting and our kids, something's not right, health issues, something's not right, the work situation has failed, I've disappointed so many people. In many churches, we are apt to stuff that down, come into church with a big smile on our face, and everything's fine because it is embarrassing to walk in and confess to somebody that whatever we thought God had for me failed. I thought being married would be like this, but it's not. I'm afraid to tell anybody because it shows that there's some kind of weakness in me. I thought having kids would be a piece of cake. You know, they can just praise me on all the time and write letters. I thought it was gonna be like this, but I failed in this area. Work, this, you pick the area, maybe a health condition, that you thought things were gonna be great, but yet they have failed. Well, like Epaphroditus, churches should say the same thing that Paul does, and that is receive this person with joy because failings are not failings if we are faithful to the God who's given us them. For whatever reason, people, God allows these hard things in our lives. I don't know why, for whatever reason that is, but we are to be faithful in that. And I've been thinking a lot about failure recently, part because I've been reading uh, about Epaphroditus, but part because I'm coming to face-to-face with my own failings in some aspects of my life at work and in my own house. I found myself saying this phrase that I really haven't said for years, and that is, I am such a failure. I am such a failure. A couple of you, uh, we have good relationships, and I'm able to tell you that, that I say this a lot. I feel like such a failure. Like Epaphroditus, I'd be ashamed to walk in here and tell you that I'm a failure. Except I have a microphone and I'm telling you all that I'm a failure now. Uh, but it is shameful to do that, right? Because if the, if the idea was back to me, if I told you I was a failure and you're like, well, you just need to pray more and dismiss it like that, that doesn't do anything. It makes me feel worse. And so the idea of being a failure is very clear in my life, but it's not working hard that I need to get better at. It's not being a better dad or husband or teacher at school. I learned something from the strangest of sources. It's a song. Uh, There's a song that's on constant repeat in our house. It's Mercy Me's Flawless. Have you heard this song? I'm kind of new to Mercy Me, just a few months here, but Mercy Me has a song called Flawless. And it's a reminder that on on those days that I have failed again and again, and that failure is as new as, oh, right before church today, uh, that I can be reminded, like Paul reminds Epaphroditus, that God can be honored even in my failure. Here's how the Mercy Me song goes. 
So in the middle of all this failure, the singer says, then like a hero who takes the stage when we're on the edge of our seat saying, it's too late. And so that's me. That's me in my life. That's probably you in your life. You're at the edge of your seat. The, the drama in front of me is too much. It's, there's no hope here. I have failed. There's no hope. And as soon as that moment where I am saying it is too late, the song goes on. Well, let me introduce you to Amazing Grace. No matter the bumps, no matter the bruises, no matter the scars, still the truth is the cross has made you flawless. No matter the hurt or how deep the wound is, no matter the pain, still the truth is the cross has made you flawless. To say that that song has given this guy hope is an understatement because this right here is the kind of thing we all need to hear when we feel like failures. Whether it's Epaphroditus who didn't quite finish the mission that he was sent and people gave a lot of time and money for, or whether it's this guy in my own house that I feel like a failure. Jesus has made me flawless. Doesn't mean that I am perfect in my actions, but I can face God honestly with the work of what Jesus has done on the cross. This has given me real hope here. God is the God of our failures as well as the God of our successes. And I don't know why this stuff comes in our lives, whatever our stuff is here. I don't know what it is, but I know that we can be faithful to God and faithful to him and how we handle this failure. So I think with Timothy and with Epaphroditus, he, we see two men that are worth honoring and worth imitating in two different ways for two different reasons. Well, Paul is intentional in balancing the ticket. You know, Timothy's kind of the golden child, you know, kind of that either the kid in your family, you, maybe you were, you were that golden child, right? And you could do no wrong. Timothy's kind of like that in this picture in a way. Uh, Paul loves Timothy, and every time he speaks to him and about him, it's always in these praying ter- praising terms. On the other side, Epaphroditus is different. He's not the golden child. In fact, he's the one who lost. He's not the story that's going to be at the billboard with shining lights, but he is faithful, and that does something for us. And imagine now, Timothy and Epaphroditus, are fi- they finally make it back to Philippi, and as custom was, they would read Paul's letters aloud because they didn't have print, of course. And so as they read the letters aloud, Timothy's in the congregation hearing what Paul said about him to the church of Philippi. Epaphroditus is in here. Can you imagine hearing that? Especially my friend Epaphroditus, who feels like such a loser because he wasn't able to do what he wanted to do, and he still feels like people stare at him. But yet Paul gives, you're my fellow worker and my fellow soldier. Honor such men. To say that's encouragement is a great thing. Now we move from modeling our lives after Timothy and Epaphroditus. Both men in both of those encouragements can help us be better in character. But now we're going to move a bit to what Paul does. Paul becomes a model for us as well, maybe unintentionally. Paul is very clear with his praise and encouragement in all of his letters. Sometimes he gets at them in their face too, but for the most part, Paul always is giving praise about other believers in other areas. I have heard about your, I have seen your, you have served me when, this idea that Paul 
gives encouragement to other believers is something that builds up our church. And how good are we at that? How good are we to lift up the Timothys and the Epaphroditus's in our midst right here? Do we spot Christian character and be able to verbalize it and say to the person when we see good quality Christian growth? Hebrews gives us a command that I I think fits in with Paul of sorts. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 tells us this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Stir up one another to love and good works. Paul says it a different way later. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. By us encouraging, like Paul does to Timothy and Epaphroditus, and you doing to you, and you doing to over here, you, by us doing that as a body, we are stirring each other up to love and good works. But we don't do that. When Paul and Timothy read about the praise, the encouragement that Paul noticed in their Christian character, how could they not be stirred up to do more of that? So Timothy's sitting in the crowd and Pastor Paul gives them his long list of praise. How could Timothy not want to do that even more? He was stirred up to more good works and more love and affection for the body. They must have been stirred up to good works like none before, not because they were trying to earn salvation. They already had that, but rather they were responding to God's goodness in their life. Somebody recognized something that they did that reflected Jesus, and they were able to do that so much more. Encouraging each other here in church, it's a command. It is not something that would be nice or would make each other feel good. We should almost be on the prowl to look for ways to encourage each other. Prowl for that. To affirm what we've seen in Jesus in their lives, how he or she has grown in the faith, even how somebody has has overcome some of those failures. How How have we seen someone who is failing at something cling to the rope of Christ to be able to be saved? Well, we don't do it, honestly. We don't do it. I don't know if it's an American thing or not. But one of them is that we're embarrassed, right? It's way easier for me to make fun of you than me to compliment you. Watch, I'm gonna show you this right now. I'm just kidding, uh, I won't do that. But it's, it's way easier for us to do it. Maybe we're a little embarrassed to say something nice because it's kind of girly or something. But how ridiculous is that? Get over it, it's a command. How about this one? Well, I don't want someone to get a big head. They're gonna get conceited if I tell them they're doing a good job. This is ridiculous. By you telling somebody that you see some aspect of Jesus in their lives is going to do the opposite of them getting a bigger head. They are going to be stirred up to get more of Jesus, to be more like Jesus. Shouldn't we be part of all of that? We get to do that. Here's another opposition. Well, it robs them from treasure in heaven. If anybody says that here, slap them in the back of the head. You have my eldership rule on that. Uh, That is just ridiculous. If you encourage somebody for looking and acting like Jesus in this area, you are not robbing anything. You are giving glory to the Father. So let's do more of that. But really, here's the real reason why we don't encourage as a regular basis in our churches is that we don't train ourselves to see it. We don't train ourselves to be looking for ways to encourage. 
Imagine if you had an assignment and I said, you have to encourage five people today. I mean, I wouldn't give that assignment, that's odd, but uh, you would be looking for ways, you know, because, oh, there's a prize at the end too. You would be looking for ways to do it. Well, shouldn't we be doing that? But we don't train ourselves to see what's worthy to be praised. Sometimes the people up front here, if they have a microphone, they're kind of easy to see. Don't praise these people, you know, because they've already, well, you can praise them. I, I'm not saying don't, but John, you did a great job today. I really like it when you leave music. Uh, see how easy that was? Uh, and so not just there, but the people who are serving all over this church, look for ways that you can say thank you, that you see like Christ's humility to serve others. Nobody wants to clean a toilet. Nobody wants to mop a floor. Nobody wants to take out that filthy diaper bin that people forget to take out for a week at a time. Nobody wants to do that in and of themselves. They do it for the glory of God. And so we should look for ways to do this. But we don't, right? I mean, just in general, we like to be consumers. We like to take things in. Give me a good sermon. Let, sing good songs. Take care of my children. I want to get this stuff. Nothing wrong with any of that if that's part of the equation. The other part of the equation is what are you not consuming, but what are you giving for other people as well? What are you feeding other people so that you can spot Christ-likeness in each other? If Timothy and Epaphroditus went to Pillar Okinawa, would any of us be able to see and comment on the same things Paul commented on? Would we be able to say the same things? I hope so. But here's the truth. The truth is that there are tons of people serving all over in Pillar and other churches, of course, on island. They're serving and nobody even knows it. So sitting, standing up front is easy because you can see them. But what about those kids who are, the people who are watching our kids now or the people who are cleaning up garbage after the service, straightening chairs, et cetera, et cetera? Is that think of the power to stop and acknowledge the selflessness and the Christ-likeness in people, what that would do. This would do an opposite of leading to conceit. You would be building people up in Jesus. Now, I saw this in a very strange way, accidentally, that has nothing to do with church, but it was in my classroom. I teach uh, an AP English class, um, and in one of the periods, just out of, out of nowhere, one of the girls just stood up and she said, you know what we should do? Everybody always feels so bad about, teenagers feel so bad about themselves. We should, have, we should tell each other what we see in them because that'll help. And I just thought, well, that's, it's kind of weird. I'm not a touchy-feely kind of guy, but let's try it. So we had in this class this year, you know, every kid, I had 20 kids in this class, every kid started the class, he or she stood up here and, okay, Melanie, uh, who has something to say about Melanie? So kids went around talking about Melanie, the qualities they saw in Melanie, in her studiousness, in her writing, in her comedy, in her kindness to other students. And it was infectious to see how this works. The first one where kind of, kids were kind of embarrassed to say things, but by the 20th one after, you know, we did this for about a month, by the 20th one, I had to stop kids from talking. Okay, really, last one, we, last one. But right away, that just, I saw this teenage kid, this cool, you know, teenage kid who doesn't care about school, you know, that was you, maybe, but kind of break down. When you compliment somebody sincerely, their face contorts. What, what, you see that in me? I don't see that in me, I feel like a failure. And I, I'm assuming like teenagers, are like if they're anything like me, 
just feels like a failure every moment of their day for crying out loud. Maybe that was just me, too much, a sharing. But uh, is that we all feel like failures. And so to have somebody tell you something that you can't see, how can that not be encouraging? So you take it out of the classroom and let's put it into the church. We all feel like we're failures, right? We all feel like we're not measuring up to Jesus. And if you were to tell somebody what you see, how they do measure up, even though they don't see it, how encouraging that would be. If somebody is failing in some area of their life, how encouraging would it be to say that you, I notice you fighting through this and what an encouragement that is. Now, God designed the church to be this place. This is the place to do it, not my classroom. My classroom was just kind of an interesting little experiment. But this is where we can build each other up for the gospel. This is where we intertwine our lives. If you're a consumer, you hear a sermon, you sing a song, you take some bread and juice, and then you run out, you bolt out of here. That is not what we're talking about. I've met people who talk about, well, I still listen to my pastor's sermon. I kind of use that as church. You know, um, that's fine. I'm sure he's a great speaker. Listen to sermons all week long. But listening to a sermon is not the same as having your life mixed in a fight club or in a missional community where you can be honest and you can encourage and someone can encourage you back. That's where real growth comes. That's where we become like Timothy and Epaphroditus. It's more awkward. It's way easier to run out of here during the last song of communion. That doesn't count. I already had communion so I can run out. Uh, It's way easier to do that than it is to... Share your failures. Share your encouragement to others. Looking at our thesis once again here, the overarching statement, through our active involvement in the church, that's right here at Pillar Okinawa, God gives us opportunities to grow in Christ-likeness by imitating godly examples and encouraging others in the faith. We have godly examples right here, right in front of us, to encourage, to model ourselves after, to be encouraged by. I mean, just look around. There are Timothys and Epaphroditus's sitting right here. This morning, I came at the first service. I was walking up. Little Caleb Harrison back there. Raise your hand, Caleb. He's sitting in the sound booth. Caleb was sweeping uh, something. I don't even know what. There's mystery substances here on Sunday mornings uh, on Gate 2 Street. He was sweeping something up. Eight-year-old Caleb was sweeping up something. What what, What a treasure that is to see kids serving in this way. My boy Landon back here. Landon, uh, he's a faithful server here. I don't know if you know this. He comes, he serves next door most times, many times, and he's here. There was a, a recent little project. I don't want to say it necessarily aloud, but uh, Landon, thanks for doing that. Something needed to be done that nobody was doing, and Landon did it better than I even imagined. That was great. If you want to see a master teacher and what that looks like, go observe Heather Cullen's classroom. I watch that sometimes, just walking through. She is not babysitting your kids. She is instructing them in the ways of the Lord. It is organized, it is clear, it is powerful, and it is something that we can imitate. That is something that we should imitate here. Crystal Cirillo, if you want to find out how to encourage people, hang around her. Just follow her around. Be creepy. Just kind of like follow her around. (laughs) I hear her talk to people, and she has that already sweet voice. 
I don't know if it's Southern or what. That's my Southern voice. Uh, <laughs> Crystal Cirillo, will, you will walk away feeling encouraged. If that is a conversation or if that is a passing good morning, you will feel encouraged because she can do this well. And the cars, you've had a tough, a tough go. Your fight for joy has been an encouragement for people. Ways that you have no idea. So thank you for that. We could go on, can't we? We could go on about people in our community who are worthy to be uh, encouraged. They're worthy to be imitated. It doesn't mean that all any of these people are perfect Christians. They're not. But they are people who are worthy to be imitated and certainly worthy to see and encourage. We have these people right here. Lots of Timothys, lots of Epaphroditus's. You need to be encouraged by them and you need to encourage them. It only works if everybody does it. It doesn't work if you're just waiting for the elders or John Ransom to do it. John is not the professional encourager here, okay? He's good at encouraging. If you, I've been in a lot of meetings with John, with some of you and just w- personally, John is great at encouraging, but we all need to do it here. And you know who else needs to be encouraged? Hold on. That wasn't for anticipation. Who else needs to be encouraged is John Ransom. Sometimes we think that the pastor is so high and holy that he doesn't need it. He just, we need to receive it from him. And that becomes part of our consumer culture is that John, come on, give me some of that encouragement. I need it. I'm in trouble right now. Give me some encouragement. Whereas John is just as messed up as all of you people are, right? We all are struggling. We all are trying to find our way. We all are trying to be more like Jesus. And John needs it just as much as you need it. I went to a church in Colorado Springs many years ago, and it was this huge church, 1,000 people, um, and they had the pastor, uh, guest speaker that day. The pastor and his wife were sitting there, but they had a guest speaker today, and the guest speaker finished his sermon, and then he's like, you know, I want us to show how much we appreciate Ted and Gail. Ted, Gail, come on up here. Have a seat. So he put two chairs on the stage, and he says, we're going to show how much we appreciate them, but I want everyone to take your wallet out, and whatever money's in there, I want you to put it at their feet. So a thousand people got into a line and came up, and the uh, pastor and his wife were sitting there, you know, embarrassed kind of, but was like, oh my gosh, this is a lot of money. Uh, and they, everyone was dropping money at their feet. We're going to do that to me now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, now, I do not agree with that. I think that was a very silly thing to do in retrospect. Some guy dropped keys for his motorcycle in that pile. I remember it very vividly. But I want you to find a way to encourage. Well, this will be the first step in encouraging. John Ransom. He's not doing poorly or anything like that. I don't want to set that stage up. But sometimes we forget that the guy who needs encouraging is our chief shepherd, or Jesus is our chief shepherd, but our pastor here, he needs a word of encouragement or two. And I want us to do that right now. Take out your phone. Go ahead. Take out your phone. We're going to put John's text right there. Uh, There you go. Let's encourage blast John Ransom right now. All right. Send send a, a couple of sentences what you appreciate about John Ransom. If you're new and you don't really know John, maybe something about the church, the the environment that you appreciate. 
I just think this would be an interesting exercise in encouraging. So go ahead, I'll give you a second. I'm way earlier than John Ransom is, so we got another hour. Send him a quick note. Something that he has appreciated or you have appreciated about him. be checking your other text messages. I gave you one job, one task. Got that? Just a quick note to John. All right. Well, let Pillar... Okinawa be a place that we can imitate the service of Timothy, learn from the failure of Epaphroditus, and model our encouraging words that Paul has for fellow believers. If we all do this, we lift up Jesus, not each other. We're lifting up Jesus and stirring up love and affection for good works and honor for each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today, and we thank you for any opportunity that we can remember that you give us grace by giving us models to imitate. And so, Lord, we pray now that we would take those models of imitation and make them our own, Lord. We want to be more like you. We pray that this would be a church that we can encourage that in others, and others can encourage that in us. In your name we pray.